Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome. Welcome to a very special episode of Cryptique. Ryan had to call in sick tonight, but that's okay. Why? Because Michael Cremo, the forbidden archaeologist, joins us tonight to blow your mind. Michael Cremo, also known as the forbidden archaeologist, is hailed as a groundbreaking research pioneer and international authority on archaeological anomalies. His landmark bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology, first published in 1993, already translated into 26 languages, challenged the very foundation of Darwinian evolution. Michael continues to dig up enigmatic discoveries in the fossil record and shake up accepted paradigms, exploring famous archaeological sites around the world, journeying to sacred places in India, appearing on national television shows in the United States and other countries, lecturing at mainstream science conferences, or speaking to alternative gatherings of global intelligentsia. As he crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries, he presents to his various audiences a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the nature of reality. He is a member of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists, as well as a research associate in history and philosophy of science for the Bactive Dante Institute. After receiving a scholarship to study international affairs at George Washington University, Michael began to study the ancient Sanskrit writings of India known as the Vedas. In this way, he has broadened his academic knowledge with spirituality from Eastern tradition. With that, Cryptique's proud to have world-renowned author, groundbreaking research pioneer, and international authority on archaeological anomalies, Michael Cremo. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you and all your listeners. Absolutely. So, of course, we'll link all your info in the show notes, but I like to give the guests the chance to go over the best place to find the books and where they can find you because I find a lot of times if we do it at the end of the show some people you know tune out so if you want to go ahead and just give them a rundown of your books where they can find them where they can find you that would be awesome okay uh, a good place to start is my website mcremo.com m-c-r-e-m-o.com and there you can find my books. Uh, you can also find upcoming events like November 10th through 12th. I'm going to be a, a speaker at the Stairway to the Stars conference that's being held at the Luxor Hotel and Resort at uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Mm -hmm. So that would be great to see some of you there. Uh, we have some special offers for my books on my website. If someone gets a copy from my website of my latest book, My Science, My Religion, they'll also have an opportunity to receive, if they want it, uh, a complimentary free copy of Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the texts of ancient India that have greatly inspired my work. Mm -hmm. So that would be a good place to start, mcremo.com. It'll have upcoming interviews and things like that also. Okay, and I, I want everyone to know that it's important 
when we have a guest on that you get their books from their website. It doesn't benefit you if somebody gets a book off of eBay and you're not being funded by Big Pharma or the Rockefellers or something like that. So we need to make sure they get the books off your website. So, yeah, well, that, that helps definitely. Of course, they are available other places, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, getting them from the website is a help. Absolutely. Now, before we get started, I want to ask you, who came up with the title or the phrase Forbidden Archaeology? Because that's just one of the coolest phrases and book titles I've ever heard. Well, I came up with it. Nice. And, you know, you're, you're right. It's kind of become a, a generic name, you know, like it happens with some consumer products, mm -hmm. you know, the the name of a specific uh, item becomes a generic name for the whole like Q-tips. Uh, can you give us a brief background kind of on when you started challenging mainstream science with your research? Like what got you into this? Yeah, well, that's, that's quite a story. Uh, it has something to do with the way I grew up. My father was a, a military intelligence officer he was in the he was in, in the air force and you know that meant a few things for me as i was growing up one thing it meant is we were moving around a lot mm -hmm. you know in the united states around the world and i got exposed to a lot of different worldviews and cultures so that's one thing that influenced me and among the different cultures that I got exposed to, the spiritual culture of India really attracted me. So I uh, began studying the writings of that wisdom tradition. Mm -hmm. And in, the, in, the, in these histories that were written in the ancient Sanskrit language, I read accounts of human civilizations existing on earth millions of years ago so it was something completely different than anything i had heard from my teachers in high school or mm -hmm. university and i just began to wonder well is there any truth to that or is it just some mythological invention by whoever put those books together mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, let me look into uh, archaeology and see what archaeologists have to say. Of course, when I looked in the current textbooks of archaeology, I didn't find any evidence for human civilizations existing millions of years ago. Of course not. So, <laughs> so I, I decided, and this may have something to do with the fact that I was exposed to people at the intelligence services when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of suspected, well, maybe there's some things going on behind the scenes that aren't making their way into today's textbooks. So when I started looking into the original reports by archaeologists and other scientists, I found there were many reports of human bones, human artifacts, human footprints going back very far in time, much further than the textbooks said. Mm -hmm. 
So I kind of wondered, well, if this evidence is there in the original scientific reports, why doesn't it get more widely known? And that's where I came up with the idea that there's some knowledge filtering going on, that there is a kind of forbidden archaeology that is there, but not talked about. So. All right. I mean, that, that definitely makes sense that you, you know, you had a father that's like, I can't tell you about everything, but there's some other stuff that nobody knows about. So, um, yeah, what it's classified. Exactly. Can you tell us, uh, and I don't know if this is the right term or not, but a little bit about your spirituality. Yeah. Uh, well, as I was saying, when I was growing up, I came in contact with the spiritual traditions from India. And of course, at, at that time, there was a, a lot of interest in yoga, meditation among people. And I... I took initiation from a guru from India, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I began the practice of a system of yoga called bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. And one of the principles of bhakti yoga is that if you have some talent or ability, you should make it part of your yoga and meditation. You should use whatever your talent or ability is for some higher purpose. And you know, I, I think everybody's kind of looking for that. You know, something sure. that they can do that they they feel they're they're making some contribution beyond their own. I don't, I don't want to call it selfish. But personal interest, sure. You know, so uh, somehow I've been able to do that. I've got you know some talent for writing and researching, and you know maybe even giving talks and things like that. So I've been able to do that, integrate mm -hmm. my spirituality and my tendencies to work and act in a certain field so yeah I, I i feel fortunate that i've been able to do that you seem very mellow and i just it's hard for me because if i had all the information that you have and had done all the research i would be just angry and i want to yell at people like no you need to listen to this this is what's being hidden from you but you maintain this nice calm kind of uh disarming you know tone and and do you feel like that is kind of helpful well yeah, in, in, a, in a sense, I mean, everybody's got their personality. <laughs> and, you know, you, you could say I'm a low-key kind of person. Sure. You know, that, that's, I guess, just the way, way I am. It's not something that I artificially put on. Sure. But, you know, sometimes uh, you do kind of get in that warrior mode. Mm -hmm. I remember once I was 
yeah, my, my book's been published in a lot of different languages. Mm-hmm. One of them is Portuguese. So I went to Brazil once mm-hmm. where, you know, Portuguese is the language that's spoken down there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was doing a, a lecture tour, doing media events, speaking at universities, public lectures. So I was invited to the main university in Sao Paulo, Brazil, huge city. And uh, during my talk, I noticed there was one professor. The audience was professors and students, you know. And mm-hmm. there was this one professor who was just kind of glaring at me, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, it was like when when the talk was over and it was time for questions, he was the first one up, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and he asked some kind of challenging question. And I had an answer for it. And then he just started yelling and screaming at me. And, you know, I, I, I kind of gave it back to him. <laughs> You know, he was saying, everything you're saying is full of bullshit. It's just all bullshit and bullshit. You know, I, I said, you're saying bullshit so many times. I think your head is full of it. Yeah. You know, so you do kind of get, I mean, occasionally you do get into situations where uh, you have to respond in kind. That does happen sometimes, but... Well, I certainly mainly, understand that. Mainly, like you say, I'm kind of a mellow guy. Yeah, it seems to me that when, you know, people have bought into, you know, what we've been taught, and then someone brings facts that go against that, it's the immediate response is anger in name calling and that's that's kind of a sad state of affairs that we, that we live in so so moving on a little bit i've i've got a bunch of questions and they're not in a real particular order so i apologize if if we jump around a little bit oh i think you do whatever it is you would like to do sure all right well you know everybody's familiar with darwinism and i was listening to you on the cliff dunning podcast and you told this amazing story that most people probably don't know about about the other guy that was kind of involved in this before uh getting in a little bit into the paranormal and then they kind of canceled him can you tell our listeners that story yeah, well, Charles Darwin is kind of famously identified with the theory of evolution. They call it the Darwinian theory or Darwin's theory. Uh, but most people aren't really aware that there was a, another scientist involved, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was an English biologist, naturalist. He's a little bit younger than Darwin. And he was out in Southeast Asia, and he came up with a 
theory of evolution based on natural selection. And he wrote a paper about it mm -hmm. that he was going to publish or and give as a lecture at a scientific organization in London mm -hmm. sometime in the future. And, you know, Darwin had, you know, he had uh, maybe 10 or 20 years before gone on a worldwide tour on an English ship, the Beagle, mm -hmm. and he'd come up with his theory of evolution, but he never published it. You know, he was writing his book, The Origin of Species, for about 20 years. And then one day he gets this letter from Wallace, you know, along with a, a copy of his paper. And Darwin was shocked that Wallace had come up with the, practically the same theory, you know, evolution by natural selection. Mm. And Darwin was just shocked. Yeah, he called together some of his scientific friends and said, what am I going to do? Yeah, because the first scientist who publishes a theory gets his name on it. Right. You know, it, you know so, he, so Darwin said, okay, I've been working on this theory for 20 years, and now this guy comes up and he's got the same theory, and he's already scheduled to presented at the scientific society in London. It was called the Linnaean Society. Mm -hmm. And he's going to get the credit for it. And his friends advised him, well, the only thing you could really do is ask Wallace if you could present a paper on your work on evolution at the same time, sure. at the same meeting. In other words, they would both present Mm -hmm. papers together and they did that and for a long time it was called the Wallace Darwin theory of evolution and then you may wonder okay well why is Wallace's name no longer associated with it mm -hmm. it's because Wallace became involved in research into the paranormal. Now, he was a very prominent scientist, a co-founder of the theory of evolution by natural selection. And he was investigating mediums. He was investigating levitations. He was investigating psychokinesis, you know, the ability of mind to move matter. Mm -hmm very unusual ways that we can't explain by our current laws of physics. So Darwin was really upset with him. And he said, he wrote to him saying, by getting into this kind of research, this paranormal research, you are murdering our child, the theory of evolution. <laughs> they were the joint parents of that theory. So uh what happened is that Wallace kind of persisted in his research. I think he's one of the great heroes of the scientific world for doing what he did. Absolutely. You know, he, he kind of refused to be intimidated. You know, he just kind of went on with this research and said it should be brought to the attention of other scientists. We can't just 
push this out of the way because it's uncomfortable and makes us doubt our current theories. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the story of Wallace, Alfred Russell Wallace. Like one of the great scientists of all time. And one of the first people to be completely canceled and uh, kind of just written off. I mean, I'm, I'm no scientist, but it sounds like, you know, that's the way to go about it. You, you just investigate and disprove until you come up with, you know, what the actual answer is. But yeah, it, it did, you know, Darwin was right. It did kind of murder his career at least and you know got him cut off of the uh the name of the theory so but yeah i i totally agree i i think that if people are willing to step outside the box a little bit that's when real progress is made and and it's a shame that you know he got cut out but why are they continuing with all of the lies because we've all heard the commercial you know if you tell one lie it leads to another you tell another lie to cover each other and it just kind of seems like they just keep coming up with more and more lies to cover up where they messed up in the past instead of just going back and admitting like okay well maybe we were wrong about this let's investigate why are they lying about everything well i i think it's uh has to do with power mm-hmm. you know there are different kinds of power in the world there's military power there's political power there's financial power there's cultural power there's different kinds of power and influence that people have in the world mm-hmm. and one power is this intellectual or scientific power which is very subtle, but it's very real. Mm-hmm. And what those who possess this power have the ability to do is dictate to us our sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And basically what scientists have chosen to do is define our identity in a very materialistic way. And that means they tell us you're, you're a machine made of molecules in competition with others mm-hmm. for survival. You're a machine made of matter. And if a person identifies in that way, then naturally their goals and objectives in life become very materialistic. They'll think that they produce and consume more and more material things in competition with others who are trying to do the same thing individually and collectively as nations. They will, they will just naturally fall into that way of life. Mm-hmm. And that means they can be controlled, exploited, mm by those who are running the system and generates this process of material production, consumption, generates wealth and it flows in certain ways that aren't always exactly fair and equitable, you know, and you get a whole 
basically you get the kind of world that we have with conflict on all levels of human society and intense exploitation of natural resources that mm -hmm. results in environmental destruction mm -hmm. and disturbances so and that's that's the result of this group of people who have this intellectual power having made some decisions uh, over the past couple of centuries about how the game of science is going to be played according to what rules it's going to be played mm -hmm. and one of the rules is you can't bring in any non-material substance mm -hmm. like consciousness mm -hmm. uh, that is a mystery for scientists basically they want to say well Consciousness is produced by chemicals interacting in the brain, but they've never shown how that could possibly happen, even in theory. Mm -hmm. What to speak of, give some practical demonstration of it. So, I think consciousness is something that can exist independent from matter, and that consciousness defines who we are in other words we're not machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival right. I'm a being of pure consciousness you're a being of pure consciousness we're all beings of pure consciousness we're all related on that platform there's no need to divide ourselves up into competing groups and as far as our material needs are concerned we can learn to satisfy them in the most fair, natural, simple, efficient way possible while putting most of our human energy into developing the, the resource of consciousness. Right. Of course, that would result in completely different kinds of institutions, different financial institutions, different political institutions, mm -hmm. different institutions of all kinds, even religious and cultural and so on. If you had a different sense of identity. So I think that's the reason why they resist this kind of evidence, which tends to show, well, yeah, we're not just machines made of molecules. We're beings of pure consciousness ultimately so I think that's that's why they try to keep that kind of stuff marginalized sure and to keep control yeah keep people in the rat race as was sometimes said or yeah, you know, being good producers and consumers of material things. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. agree more. So, tell us about your theory on how the human race came to be, where we're from, and as far as, you know, your research has gone so far, how long we've been here. Find out after a quick break. 
Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Well, you know, I think the evidence that I documented in Forbidden Archaeology shows we've been here for hundreds of millions of years, going really back to the very beginnings of the history of life on Earth. And to me, once one accepts that we live in a consciousness-based cosmos, not a matter-based cosmos, that consciousness is primary, and that ultimately what we call matter comes from consciousness and not the other way around, and where matter is primary and uh, consciousness is a, a, a byproduct of matter combining at a certain level of complexity. Once we accept the primary nature of consciousness, then it becomes obvious or becomes something one can rationally consider mm -hmm. is that the universe actually has a purpose because we experience consciousness in the world of matter as being very limited mm -hmm. in the sense that the conscious self has a bodily vehicle made of matter like currently I'm occupying a human vehicle mm -hmm. but there are some conscious cells that are in bird vehicles and some conscious cells are in dog dog vehicles and some in fish vehicles and some in bird vehicles sure. and insect vehicles every kind of material body under this theory or way of looking at things is a vehicle for a conscious self but the human vehicle is a particularly interesting one because it's in the human vehicle that we can actually think about these things mm -hmm. and potentially do something to elevate our consciousness to a state beyond the limitations of the material vehicles that are that come into existence last for a hundred years or so and then disintegrate <laughs> and then I, I accept the idea of reincarnation then the conscious self goes to another embodiment in some other type of physical vehicle, maybe human, maybe not human. But the human form is valuable because in the human form, the conscious self can realize its full potential and real nature, which takes one beyond the temporary world of matter. So I think that human form of life, that human bodily vehicle has always been available mm -hmm. in this universe and many other universes, which I believe are constantly being manifested and unmanifested in vast cycles of time. So I think the human vehicle has always been available, just like if we send it, you know, we make a space station and 
put it in orbit around the Earth. We don't just hope that somehow or other the chemicals inside the space station are going to spontaneously form some single-celled living organism which will evolve into astronauts. Yeah. No, we send the space station up because we've got astronauts mm-hmm. to put in it, you know, right when it goes up. So I think our whole cosmos is like that. It's like a, a spaceship. Hmm. And it was made for a certain purpose, and that purpose can be realized in the human form of life. And it's always that human bodily vehicle has always been available for conscious selves. Well, that makes sense. Do you think that there's undiscovered people of a different lineage than us that are still around? I mean, I know we had Homo florensiensis, and I, I know that there's, you know, still what they, I guess, would term undiscovered, you know, maybe Amazon tribes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, like the inhabitants of uh, Sentinel Island. Uh, you know, people that are similar to us, but maybe not Homo sapiens sapien that are, you know, still around? Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that's definitely the fact. Um, the ancient Sanskrit writings of India speak of such things. You know, there are human beings, there are apes and monkeys, mm-hmm. but there were also creatures called vanaras. Mm-hmm which means they had ape-like bodies, but uh, human-like abilities. Okay. In other words, they more or less correspond to the hominins, you know, the ape-men that modern science talks about. Uh, And, you know, they keep discovering more and more species of human-like creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you know, you, you mentioned Homo floresiensis. Thank you. <laughs> who they call the hobbit. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you know, if you, in the world of anthropology and archaeology, it helps to have a good name True. for uh, a hominid. You know, so they call it the hobbit. Yeah, if people hear scientists discover bones of Homo floresiensis, they have no idea what that means. But they say scientists discover hobbit in mm-hmm. Indonesia. You know, that, that makes more sense. Or they give a give the fossil a name like Lucy, sure, you know, famous Australopithecine. You know, it kind of humanizes them, but. Uh, yeah, I was just reading this morning a report about a discovery that was made in China, and the scientists there been looking at this uh, human-like creature, saying it may be a, a sister species to Homo sapiens. And you now it's kind of interesting when forbidden archaeology first came out. Mm-hmm. 1993, uh, most scientists believe that there was a linear progression Mm -hmm. from Australopithecus to 
Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, finally. You know, with only one species existing at one time. Mm. It was kind of a linear progression. And we pointed out in Forbidden Archaeology that if you really look at all the evidence, the pattern that emerges isn't one of linear evolution, but of coexistence of various types of hominid species anatomically modern humans coexisting with uh, various types of hominins they were called like Australopithecus and Homo erectus and the regular apes and monkeys. And I think that's always been true. I think it's true today. It was true in the distant past that humans like us have not been part of a linear evolutionary development, but have simply coexisted with these other types of creatures. And even today, I think that's true. Now, that kind of takes you into the area of Sasquatch and Bigfoot and the Yeti, the Himalayan snowman. And oh, we love that. <laughs> others. If, but, uh, well, if you had to make a guess on what Sasquatch may be, I mean, I don't know how much research you've done into, you know, this particular topic. I know a lot of people have a lot of different theories about what Sasquatch may be. Do you have like a particular theory on what Sasquatch is or, or even like the giants of uh, Catalina Island or Grand Canyon? Um, I, I do have some ideas okay. about what Sasquatch may be. Uh, one thing that was apparent from the descriptions of the Vonaras, who are creatures that resemble Sasquatch and the hominins like Australopithecus that modern science talks about mm -hmm. is that they had mystic powers, mm -hmm. some of them. And that means they could move quickly from place to place you know, by some type of mystic power. They could appear and disappear. And, you know, and that appears to be connected with the modern Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti type of phenomenon. Because mm -hmm. nobody up to this point has been able to capture one of these creatures, right. although there are many types of evidence showing that they exist, like footprints and hairs mm -hmm. that have been recovered. But nobody seems to have been able to capture one and put it in a zoo or something for people to look at. Yeah. And that may be because they possess some kind of mystic powers that enable them to remain hidden mm -hmm. or to not be confined in a certain limited geographical area, but they can go to other dimensions, perhaps. 
So uh, when I look at all the evidence that's connected with these creatures, it seems they may have a, a paranormal set of abilities in addition to regular animal propensities. Well, and it seems like the groups are squarely divided. It's either 100% physical ape or it is some sort of mystic alien. But, I mean, I just look at my dogs. I mean, when I have the thought, oh, I think I'll take my dog for a walk, dog jumps up and runs to where the leash is i don't say anything i don't you know get up and say hey let's go for a walk just somehow they know so i think that yeah people need to be open when we're talking about something especially like you said it's not in a zoo we can't study it so let's not rule anything out right off the bat yeah well some of the native american indian people said that like the uh, they, that animals they have what they call a shadow, and humans also have a shadow. It's kind of a, a subtle self that extends beyond the physical body, like an aura. Yeah, yeah, like an aura. Okay, and like part of the hunting ritual was that the hunter would awaken his, his own shadow body and it's almost like radar or something yeah but it, it, their energy but he, if, if the hunter could detect the deer or whatever other type of animal was the object of the hunting mm -hmm. they would be able to capture it but the animal also has its oh, shadow sure. body and it becomes almost like a, a game mm -hmm. you know who's gonna who's gonna whose subtle subtle perception kind of body is going to prevail mm -hmm. so it becomes like a A different different way of looking at things but the animals like you were mentioning dogs mm -hmm. there was uh, one scientist who did some experiments with dogs that apparently a dog can tell when it's human companion or master I don't know if that's the right word for it but if they leave the home and they're out and about mm -hmm. at a certain time they decide to go home they get in the car and start driving home right at that moment dog will go to the window or the door sure. and start looking out you know and there was uh, one scientist who did a, a study of this you know like put cameras in the home you have know, to film the dog and then tell the uh the owner to go somewhere stay three or four hours and then at a certain point come back and 
Yeah, they've got the time code on the film on the dog and time code on the person who's out of the house. Mm -hmm. And right when they start to come back, the dog kind of gets up from wherever it was, goes to the door or the window and begins to wait for the, uh, the owner to come back. It's just yeah. amazing. They it apparently is. have some kind of ability to perceive things at a distance. We seem to have sacrificed our abilities for technology. And, you know, you talked about, I think, meditation and, you know, practicing yoga and having intentions and things like that. But if, you know, we were raised purely spiritually, like maybe some of these ancients were, what kind of abilities do you think they could have that, you know, are, are lost to us or are, you know, kind of lying dormant waiting to be found? I think one of the one of the things that is there within us naturally but which gets covered over is uh, the ability to see things at a distance remote viewing nice in other mm -hmm. words and there are a lot of researchers who have looked into remote viewing and apparently it's something that we all have, an ability that we all have, and it can be reawakened and developed by training. I remember once I was speaking at a conference in Montreal, Canada, and another researcher was there, Stefan Schwartz, mm -hmm. who was involved in some of the remote viewing experiments that were uh, actually funded by the United States military, you know, yeah. the, the intelligence services, because this was back in the 1970s. It's all been admitted. It's documented. Mm. They spent millions of dollars with remote viewing experts using people to try to remotely view what was happening with the military, you know, missile development and things, submarine development in, in Russia. Mm. So, uh, Stefan Schwartz at this conference uh, conducted a workshop and I went to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he asked people to, uh, he took there were about a hundred people there and he took three of them and he said, go anywhere, get in a car, go anywhere in Montreal within a 15 minute driving time mm -hmm. and film. He gave them a video camera, you know, film the place that you're at, stay mm -hmm. there for 15 minutes and then come back. So they left. And so Stefan Schwartz began instructing us, okay, when they get to the place, I want you to, you know, after 15 minutes have gone by, mm -hmm. I want you to write down whatever imagery comes into your mind. Don't think about it. Don't 
edit it, just sure. whatever comes into your mind, write it down. So after a few minutes, the 15 minutes was passed and the people were at wherever it was they decided to go. Mm -hmm. And I wrote down the first image that came to my mind, which was red glass can candle holders with yellow flames from a candle inside. Mm -hmm. and, you know, then he kind of asked, okay, what do you see when you look up? What do you see when you look down to the right, to the left, to the front, to the back? Mm -hmm. Wrote it all down. And then after another 15 minutes or so, the people come back mm -hmm. and he takes the videotape from the camera, puts it on the screen. And the first image that comes up is candle flames and red glass holders. Wow. Now I kind of believe in this stuff, but even I was shocked. Yeah, I got it. You know, That's it's awesome. Like something like that. So I think we do have these natural abilities, maybe telepathic, remote viewing. We have all we have abilities like that. And I think a lot of our modern technologies, you know, mobile phones and all types of communication devices mm -hmm. are you know, where we can remotely see what's going on all over the world, mm -hmm. basically. And I think that is an attempt by modern society to duplicate these natural features of human consciousness sure. in a material form that can be marketed and, uh, you know, profit can be extracted mm. from it. You know, in other words, monetize. Yeah. You know, so I think there's a, a lot of that going on that different technologies have tried to duplicate some of these natural powers and in such a way that they can be monetized and wealth can be extracted from people for it so i do yeah. think it's funny to me you know we we talk we talk about all this kind of stuff and i definitely believe that there's a lot of abilities that we have as humans that are just untapped or possibly lost but i do find it funny that science says no way that is completely impossible that can never happen and then the military is like oh we need you know like 40 million dollars to study that so it's like you science is telling us it's not real and i say science and you know quotation marks but it can't happen but then our government's like well we're gonna study it anyway and we're gonna you know tax you as much as we can to study these things so i always find that funny and people don't seem to make that connection that you know it's like well if science is telling us that this is impossible why are we paying taxes to fund studies on this stuff but what what abilities or skills do you think will be the next to go because i know when we 
you know, text. That, that seems to be everybody's preferred way of communication. We lose the ability to perceive, you know, voice inflection and body language. So, so what's on the way out? What are we going to lose? Well, I was at a conf- conference on consciousness studies a couple of weeks ago. It was held in Encinitas, California, mm-hmm. Southern California. And uh, some of the world's leading experts on consciousness studies were there. And, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about artificial intelligence and, Hmm. you know, how it's going to replace a a lot of jobs that people are doing and put them out of work. But even more interesting, I found, was a, a researcher she was developing what she called artificial emotion. In other Uh-oh. words, <laughs> she was training, you know, using, you know, the algorithms and whatever to get machines, robots, essentially, to be able to recognize emotion. You know, to recognize and take into account a person's emotions. Mm-hmm. And to me, I mean, yeah, in one sense you say, wow, but it, I was kind of frightened in a sense that, like, okay, now they're going to make. Uh, bots or robots or whatever that not only interact with the words that you type in and mm-hmm. feed back to you, you know, some amazing story or something, that these machines now are going to be able to recognize and manipulate your emotions. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I think that adds. Uh, Because generally we think, okay, at least I've got these private emotions, you know, like that's personal, that's that's me, nobody can touch me on that level, but yeah, if you have machines that are programmed to recognize your different emotions and know how to stimulate them and you could just be manipulated to, to do anything, probably. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's uh, that's one thing I'm concerned about in uh, the future, near future. It's kind of starting to look bleak, I have to say. Um, I'm going to throw something out there, and this may be totally dumb, but, you know, I'm okay with that. Um so we're going back as humans say hundreds of millions of years is there and i know everyone talks about atlantis and that's a big deal that they were technologically advanced and and stuff like that but if we dug down far enough is it possible that there's a a society or a civilization that existed on earth that is maybe in the last cycle or something where they they had computers and they had you know automobiles and and stuff like that and 
eventually they just you know went into extinction based on you know their consumption of you know natural resources at the time that sort of stuff is there is there a civilization somewhere that we would be shocked we would find a, a television or you know an automobile or something like that is that a, even a possibility find out after a quick break Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Well, it's a remote possibility for this reason. And this is something that scientists have studied, particularly scientists who are concerned about environmental destruction, Mm -hmm. which is basically being caused by the human species on Earth, Mm -hmm. because we're the ones who are building the factories and polluting the land, the water, the air, you know, driving climate change and a whole lot of other problems. You know, like, so some scientists have wondered, you know, if our human population or human species with all of its technological advancement you know, te- technologies that have covered the whole earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we were to disappear, go out of existence, how long would it take the earth to recover yeah. its natural state? And in, in other words, how long will, will our stuff, our technologies, our buildings, our machines, and everything, how long will it? the effects of it go on. Mm -hmm. And they concluded that uh, actually it won't last very long. You know, metals will oxidize Mm -hmm. except for a few, like gold. It's one of the reasons gold is so valuable. It doesn't oxidize. Mm -hmm. But pretty much everything else, you know, our buildings, uh, you were mentioning automobiles. They they, they don't last very long mm-hmm. in terms of geological time. You know, after a few thousand years, the metals and plastics and things like that that make up a car will be gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't persist for very long periods of time. So... Um, so some scientists have proposed exactly what you're saying that maybe hundreds of millions of years ago there was some kind of civilization maybe humanoid reptilians on earth Mm -hmm. that had an advanced civilization and they destroyed themselves yeah, much you know, in the like, same direction we're headed. <laughs> right. And uh, they've also looked for signs of such things on, in other planets, in mm. other solar systems, in our galaxy. You know, maybe there's some other planet that's gone through this whole process of 
developing an advanced technology and destroying their environment. Mm -hmm. But some scientists have decided to look on Earth. Maybe what would happen if there had been an advanced civilization hundreds of millions of years ago? What signs of it would we see today? Mm -hmm. And they've kind of concluded that you wouldn't necessarily see very much left. That makes uh, sense. Of, of what we call high-tech stuff, because high-tech stuff doesn't last very long. I mean, it'll last a hundred years, two hundred years, but when you talk about tens of thousands or millions of years, it just doesn't survive. Whereas a stone tool, sure, will survive over millions of years. So that makes sense. Uh, but they said, I mean, once I was participating in a discussion group with some scientists who were considering this question, they said, well, what you might find left is a narrow band of kind of crushed gravel or glass mm -hmm. and stuff like that, that if you analyze it, you wouldn't even necessarily recognize it as a, a civilization. But if you analyze it carefully, you would find compounds that don't occur naturally okay. in the environment. Or you might find some radioactivity mm. left over from some past nuclear war. You know, that's the type of thing you might be finding. You wouldn't be finding a, a complete computer sure. or a, a fancy car, a Maserati <laughs> or something. Yeah. I've been digging for a Lamborghini for no reason. Darn. Yeah. Now, getting into that, when we hear stories, you know, from ancient India, they talk a lot about weaponry that would have been way beyond what we think they were capable of. But there's sites around the world where there are some uh, some radiation issues that are kind of back up the fact that these, uh, it, forgive my uh, ignorance on the topic, but, you know, some of their weapons that they used that had the power of, you know, multiple suns and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that's kind of come up recently in the general public because of the film about Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, of course, I'd known about this for a long time. But, sure. Yeah, it kind of became a public matter of discussion because of that film. But Oppenheimer, of course, was the physicist who was in charge of the atomic bomb program mm -hmm. that you know, the United States developed in World War right. II. And so he was present at uh, the test of the atomic bomb that took place at Alamogordo, New Mexico. And 1945. Mm -hmm. And in addition to being a physicist, he was also a student of the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, including the Bhagavad Gita, where 
there is a description of uh, a an explosion that's compared to producing heat and energy like thousands of suns wow. being all together in one place and you know this uh, manifestation of God Krishna says time I am destroyer of the worlds you know it's like and when the first atomic bomb was tested mm -hmm. Oppenheimer began to recite some of those texts from Bhagavad Gita that describe this brilliant as a thousand suns mm. type of experience which actually happened when the bomb was tested mm -hmm. so uh, yeah there are descriptions of weapons in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India that resemble the modern nuclear weapons. They were called Brahmastras. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they they did have these kinds of effects. They also had flying craft, you know, spaceships. They were called Vimanas. And there's actual diagrams of these ships, right? Like yeah. blueprints basically. Yeah, there were elaborate descriptions of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, there, there are basically two ways to understand what happened in, in the distant past. One is whatever you can find in the layers of the earth, mm -hmm. you know, say the record of the rocks, you know, that, that you can use as evidence to reveal something about whoever was existing at those times. Mm -hmm. That's one way. But there are the records left by these ancient civilizations which describe from their point of view what was happening uh, during those times. So sometimes you may have to consult both sources to get a, an idea. But what's there in the record of the rocks may not reflect everything that actually existed. Sure. Because of this phenomenon of different kinds of technological devices not surviving over vast periods of time. I would love it if you would tell us the story. Uh, I believe it was a fairly recent discovery of a cave in South Africa and the, uh, the, I guess the human-like creatures were believed to have buried yeah. their dead in this cave. Is that right? Right. Yeah, that, this was a discovery that was made you know, originally maybe about 10 years ago. And okay. there were some, like in South Africa, there's a, a place it's a World Heritage, United Nations World Heritage site. It's uh, uh, called the Cradle of Humankind. It, it's uh, several sites where important discoveries uh, that are 
part of the theory of human evolution were, were made. You know, places like Sterkfontein and other places like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, some cave explorers were going through some caves in this area in a kind of it's kind of a hilly area. You know, there's some limestone caves and things like that. Mm-hmm. So they were going through some caves and they came to a narrow passageway that you had to be very small to squeeze through. So a couple of the cavers were small enough they were able to get through. Mm-hmm. And then when they got through the narrow passageway, they were in a... Uh, kind of like a room of the cave and there were fossil bones lying all around of some type of creature but there were just one type of creature it wasn't like you know you had bones of five or six different kinds of animals there was just bones of one type mm-hmm. of creature several individuals uh, of the same type and they, the cavers reported this to scientists at one of the universities in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So a, a Dr. Lee Berger and some other scientists, paleontologists, archaeologists, geologists from uh, the University of the Witwatersrand, I think it's called, in Johannesburg, South Africa, went out to this place and they began to investigate it. And what they found is, because of the narrow passageway, they had to recruit a special team of archaeologists <laughs> who had small bodies. Mm-hmm. It turned out they were all women. Mm-hmm. Yep, they recruited maybe eight or ten archaeologists who were uh, ladies with smaller bodies. And they were kind of like a special team that was able to squeeze through the narrow passageway and get into this uh, cave and start excavating the fossil remains and sending them out. And, uh, you know, they worked for a long time and they, I think they got about 1,500 uh, bones of this creature. Mm-hmm. And then the the other archaeologist, Lee Berger and his team, they studied all these things. They, they determined it was a, a new species they called Homo naledi. And as you were mentioning, they concluded that these bones had not been washed into the cave right. or something. Because if they'd been washed in, then there would have been bones of other creatures as well, you know. But they were somebody, apparently one of the members of this species or members of this species had taken bodies and deliberately put them into this cave. In other words, they were doing some kind of burial ritual. Sure. And 
they found on the walls of the cave some symbols mm. that had been carved by these people. So apparently that was another part of the ritual. So this was kind of interesting because they had dated this. Uh, I think originally they had dated the, the cave fossils as being about 300,000 years old. Mm. And I think they reduced it a little bit, mm -hmm. but it was still much older than any evidence for a deliberate burial mm -hmm. by you know, some of these ancient creatures. It was very much earlier than any previous evidence they had for humans or human-like creatures conducting a ritual burial like this. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, quite an interesting uh, discovery. You know, kind of pushed that kind of behavior further back in time. Can you tell us um, the story, and I just have it in the notes, as the bone psychic? Was there someone that uh, was able to kind of, you know, use some of these perhaps latent abilities to get a reading off of some of the bones? Find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Well, you know, there is an element of psychic archaeology. One case uh, that I'm aware of is that of J.T. Robinson, who was a very prominent paleontologist who did a lot of the early research on Australopithecus and the Sterkfontein caves, which are now part of this World Heritage Site, uh, the Cradle of Humanity in South Africa. And it's also where the Homo naledi uh, skeletal remains were found in the cave, mm -hmm. you know, that we were just talking about. So he had, although it's in all the textbooks, you know, his research. Mm -hmm. What's not mentioned in the textbooks is that he used a psychic mm -hmm. in his studies there. There was uh, uh, a psychic from the Theosophical Society who okay. he took into the Sterkfontein caves. And what he did is he had this person lie down on a blanket on his back in the Sterkfontein caves where J.T. Robinson had made many discoveries of uh, the fossil bones of different types of hominins. Mm -hmm. And he would place on the forehead of the psychic some fragment of bone or some artifact that had been found and the psychic 
was able to envision what the creature who had had owned this bone, who, the bone of which was part of the body of this creature, he would be able to see the creature and mm. understand what it was doing millions of years ago. Yeah. And in this way, he, Robinson got information that allowed him to interpret uh, his discoveries in a way that he wouldn't have been able to do without this information obtained from the psychic. And I thought that was really fascinating. It's, uh, like I said, it's, again, it's something that it's not mentioned in the textbooks. They talk about all his discoveries, J.T. Robinson's discoveries, but they never mention the psychic aspect of it. And, you know, I, you know, a few years ago, I, I reported on this case of psychic archaeology at a meeting of the World Archaeological Congress mm -hmm. that was held on... Uh, the De Dead Sea and Jordan, mm -hmm. really an interesting place. But, uh, you know, I gave my talk about this. I explained how he used the psychic. I showed photographs of him and the psychic in the Sterkfontein caves. Mm -hmm. And one of the archaeologists present later came up to me and said, you know, I've never heard about this before. And I said, well, that's what I'm here to do, tell you something that you haven't already heard. Absolutely. Because otherwise, why even be here if I'm just going to repeat something you already know? Right. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting. It, it, it kind of opened up a whole field for me, you know, psychic and spiritual archaeology, you could say. Because there are a lot of places around the world where tribal or native people have what I call folk archaeological traditions where they locate lost artifacts or sacred places mm -hmm. from information they get in dreams and visions. So I think that's a, a kind of archaeology that's exists that's real but it's not the kind of like the western scientific uh, type of archaeology and i think there can be a lot of different types of archaeology you know there can be archaeologies in the plural sure. rather than just the one academic scientific mainstream type of archaeology well i think you should use every tool that you can so being open to this kind of stuff is is only going to help i mean you if you you know come out and say it it might you know hurt your career but i don't understand why people wouldn't want to utilize every tool available yeah well i mean everyone has to make up their own minds about these things i mean one thing i'll i'll say is if somebody listens to me or reads my work and they decide okay i'm not persuaded you know very interesting mr cremo but uh, 
you know, I, I'm not really totally persuaded by what you've said or written. I respect that. Sure. Uh, what I don't agree with is if, I mean, I agree, every individual should make up their own mind about these things. Mm -hmm. What I don't agree with is when someone or some group uses force, say the force of government, you know, through its education policies mm -hmm. to impose an idea on other people or uh, deny or marginalize mm. you know, certain world worldviews approaches scientific approaches that I don't like yeah you know, I don't agree with and unfortunately that sort of thing goes on it is it's it's a it's a shame. I mean, it makes you wonder how much some of these archaeologists really know that they're just not going to report because they know it would be detrimental to their career. H have you come across like where a, a, another archaeologist has like kind of pulled you aside and said like, listen, you're right on this one. You know, I'm not going to come out and say it at this conference or I'm not going to, you know, say it in a book or, or whatever. But you're right on on this one. Uh, things like that have happened. Hmm. Uh, you know, of course, I can't name. Sure, of course. The people, but uh, a very prominent archaeologist wrote to me once. You know, you're what you're saying is we need to hear this. You know, that's what he said, as archaeologists, mm -hmm. we need to hear this. What you're doing is very important. And, you know, wouldn't say that publicly, but sure. uh, I find among archaeologists, there are some that are very much opposed to what I say. They don't want to hear it. They don't want anyone else to hear it. Yeah. I kind of call them the fundamentalist materialists. Mm. You know, they're <clears throat> they're supporters of the current theories, not so much for scientific reasons, but for ideological reasons. Basically, mm. you know, they just have some prior commitment to materialism or whatever, and they just stick by that. <clears throat> There's another group of archaeologists who are supporters of the current theories, but for more or less scientific reasons. And they're willing to listen to an alternative if it's presented in a proper way. Yeah. And consider it, you know, well, maybe it is true. And yeah, you know, they may not agree with me or whatever, but at least they're willing to listen to a new idea. And I think that's important because if new ideas are going to take hold, the first thing is people have to be willing to listen to them. And fortunately, and fortunately that is the case. There are archaeologists who are willing to listen to me and others. 
I think it's archaeologists in that category who invite me to speak at their conferences and, uh, you know, who give me a forum for speaking. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to present papers at at least dozens of major international scientific conferences over the years. All right. So I am in St. Louis. Macoupin County, Illinois is not far from me. Can you tell us about the discovery in Macoupin County? Well, that was a very interesting one. It was reported in a scientific journal called The Geologist, I believe, in mm-hmm. 1850-something, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. It told that a an anatomically modern human skeleton had been found 90 feet below the surface of the ground in coal deposits in Macoupin County, which, as you said, is near St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Uh, The interesting fact that I found was that directly above the skeleton, was a thick layer of slate rock that extended for hundreds of yards in all directions. Mm -hmm. And that is an important detail because usually when we hear about cases like this, the reaction of mainstream scientists is to say, well, somehow or other, there was either a deliberate burial of the body mm-hmm. uh, or there was some earth movement, some fissure opened up in the ground and some human skeleton from some recent burial slipped down mm-hmm. into these very ancient deposits. But yeah, there are kind of two things that make that kind of method of explaining away this discovery uh, not seem very, very convincing. And that is the depth, 90 feet. People don't dig graves <laughs> 90 feet deep. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, and then the fact that there was this unbroken layer of slate rock above the skeleton even if somebody had dug down there or there was some earth movement or fissure, it should have broken through that layer of slate rock, Mm -hmm. which was unbroken. So that kind of rules out the, what what we call the intrusive burial hypothesis or the fissure hypothesis. Generally, what, the way that scientists react to these discoveries is, oh, I should mention, the deposits in which the skeleton was found were about 300 million years old. But yeah, that, you don't hear that in the textbooks in high school and college, do you? Yeah, it's kind of a, an extreme anomaly yeah, I tried to get in touch with uh, different organizations like natural history societies and 
historical societies in Macoupin County. And they, they are, some of them are aware of this report that was published in a, a journal called The Geologist. You know, so it was a scientific journal, right? not you know, like a newspaper or magazine for the general public. Right. They're aware of it, but you know, and, and this sometimes happens with some of these more extreme cases that you know, I haven't been able to locate any of the bones from this reported discovery. So, uh, well, we know they hide stuff in the basements at the Smithsonian. So, just because you can't find it doesn't mean it's, you know, not collecting dust in a basement of a fancy museum somewhere. Yeah, well, that's that's why I included it in in the book. This case to inspire future research. You know, that at least this much is known and maybe somebody would be able to track track down where that skeleton is today. So that would... that's the reason why I included, you know, cases like like the Macoupin uh, County discoveries mm-hmm. in in the book, even though you know, I haven't been able to verify every aspect of it. Sure. What is your favorite out-of-place artifact? Find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Well, I like discoveries that demonstrate not only is there an out-of-place artifact, Mm -hmm. but that demonstrate how the knowledge filtering process was applied to kind of keep it out of the textbooks. Okay. So... One of my favorite cases is the California gold mine discoveries. And those were made during the mid to late 19th century in the Sierra Nevada mountains in central California. Mm -hmm. Gold was discovered in these mountains and miners came they dug tunnels into the sides of mountains like Table Mountain in Tuolumne mm. County and the Sierra Nevada Mountains of Central California. And inside the tunnels, the miners were finding human bones and human artifacts, obsidian mm. spear points, stone mortars and pestles. So these discoveries were made not just at one place, but in dozens of places in the California gold mining region. And these discoveries came to the attention of Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of California. 
So he went out to the sites, interviewed the people who had made the discoveries, and began investigations of his own. In other words, he did his own research as well. Mm-hmm. And he collected all this material, and he published it in a book that came out from Harvard University. And there were very well-documented discoveries, and these come from layers of rock that modern geologists tell us are about 50 million years old. Wow. So that's really amazing. So what happened was is that he began speaking about this at scientific conferences, and uh, scientists who, who were supporters of the new evolutionary theories, like Dr. William Holmes, an anthropologist at the Smithsonian Institution at Washington, D.C. He said, if Dr. Whitney had understood the theory of human evolution, he would not have published that book. He should have known that could possibly be true that humans were existing so far in the past. You know, so and never mind the evidence. <laughs> yeah, you just never mind the evidence. You know, that has to be cast into oblivion. If it contradicts the theory, well, get rid of the evidence. So I think that was a, a very clear case. Now, some of the artifacts from the California gold mines are still in the collection of the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And uh, I been there, I mean, it took, I mean, it's a whole procedure getting permission to see these <laughs> artifacts, because they're not displayed to the public. Sure. Yeah, they're kept in a storage building several miles from the museum, but they are there, and I did get permission to study and photograph them. And I also went into the Sierra Nevada mountains to Table Mountain other places where these discoveries were made and I relocated some of the old mining tunnels mm-hmm. where miners had found these things. So it's uh, it's kind of one of my favorite cases because it's very well documented, the original discoveries mm-hmm. and it's also well documented how the knowledge filtering process was carried out you know, by Dr. Holmes and others. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting that some of the artifacts are still there and some of the gold mining tunnels are, have been relocated by me. So it should be possible to do further research there. Yeah. if we find the right people that are willing to go in and do it. I just have a feeling they'll, you know, find a shill that'll go in and say, no, it's, it's all bunk. It's all junk science. It's not true. Don't yeah. Listen. It's, 
I I did work for some time with some people who were interested. Hmm. You know, there was an archaeologist who was interested in pursuing it, and there was uh, a foundation in England that was in discussion with me and this archaeologist about providing funding for it. So, of course, you can't say, hey, we're looking for evidence that human beings existed 50 million years ago. You'd have to present it as we're investigating 19th century uh, mining techniques, you know, the California gold mines. I was just going to jump in and ask what your opinion is on some of these uh, ancient sites around the world with kind of questionable mainstream scientific explanations like Pumapunku, Baalbek, Gobekli Tepe, Stonehenge, Egypt, any of those, if there's anything that you want to tackle out of those, that would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, Gobekli Tepe is interesting. You know, they're a, a German archaeologist maybe 15 or 20 years ago, uncovered a megalithic site. Megalith means you have big stone structures mm-hmm. like Stonehenge, right. for example, is considered a, a megalithic stone structure. Mm-hmm. So there was something similar that was found at this place in southeast Turkey called Gobeke Tepli. And it was contained there were huge stone columns upon which were carved the figures of human beings, animals, plus different geometrical symbols. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently they were about 13,000 years old, which is older than any of the other megalithic stone uh, monuments. Mm So it was kind of interesting. It kind of pushed things back a few thousand years. And it's become a very popular site for people to visit who are kind of into alternative archaeology. But somebody told me recently, I don't know if this is true, they say the government has shut down the site Mm -hmm. in, in Turkey. I don't know if that's true. If if it is, that would be pretty significant. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, I feel like people probably take stuff when they go there, you know, take a, a little rock from here, or a little bit from there. And, you know, these these people are oftentimes, I think, responsible for, you know, places getting shut down. Or, I mean, I don't think that people probably, you know, go there to spray paint graffiti or stuff like that but i i could be wrong but yeah it's just amazing yeah. some of these like the uh, forgotten stone and Baalbek, 18 or 1819 tons there's no way we could move that today and they say that yeah. it's quarried so it has to have come from somewhere else yeah yeah i was going to mention that yeah you have these huge 
stone column set fall back that are huge pieces of stone that have been used to make a foundation for one of the structures there. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and then at some of the sites in Bolivia that you were mentioning, they have a really interesting feature of, of uh, you know, the stone construction is apparently they had, uh, they had made metal like iron, uh, I don't know exactly what you call them, but to link rocks together, they had these joints made of metal that kind of kept the one rock connected to another and and the construction that went on there, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, and a lot of these sites, I mean, they look like they're cut with lasers. Uh, it's so precise. Every, you know, like at Puma Punku, when you're looking at a lot of the stones, they are exactly the same. And and that would be hard to do. Uh, do you have a, a theory on how some of these just massive, massive stones are being moved. Please say sound. I, I really want to hear <laughs> that there's some kind of uh, frequency that levitates, you know, structures or something along those lines. Well, I mean, according to the Vedic cosmology, everything begins from sound. Mm. Yeah, so sound is very powerful. It can manifest things and unmanifest them as well. So, yeah, I mean, sound, I mean, most people, when they think of sound, they just think of, you know, the sound you hear on the radio. Mm -hmm. But like there's ultrasound, for example. Mm -hmm. Ultrasound can be used to sterilize medical or dental instruments. Mm. That's one of the uses of it. Uh, sound can also be used to weld metals. Mm. In other words, like if you have ultrasound, focused sound, it can do amazing things. It can generate tremendous amounts of heat and you can actually weld metals together simply by using sound vibration. So sound has immense power. It could move things. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find examples of that. Or it can be used to uh, purify things mm -hmm. or weld them together. Yeah, so I think sound... I mean, we're, we're on a radio show now, so that must mean, and we're speaking, mm -hmm. we're producing sound, it must have some effect on the world or else we probably wouldn't be doing it. Absolutely. I'd love to hear that. Okay. If you could rewrite one topic for school textbooks, what would it be? Well, you know... To me, 
more important than that would be to bring up the topic of consciousness. Okay. Because, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I wrote a book, Forbidden Archaeology, which is about stones and bones. Mm -hmm. And somebody could ask, well, what's the significance whether human beings were existing a few hundred thousand years ago or a few million or billion years. I mean, what difference does it actually make? And the difference that it makes is that if <clears throat> the kind of evidence that I talked about in forbidden archaeology is taken seriously, it means we need new explanations for human origin. And I give one in my book, Human Devolution. Mm -hmm. But there we kind of move beyond the stones and the bones and get into the question of consciousness. And I think that is the biggest lie that's in the current textbooks is anything that suggests that consciousness is produced by chemicals in the brain. That, I think, idea has to be eliminated from uh, the textbooks. And I think that the independent nature of consciousness should be presented in the schools. And I think this is very important because as long as we have a matter-based picture of the world and our identity in it, we're going to have this whole set of institutions based on that mistake. Mm. So I think it's very important to introduce scientific evidence that is supported the idea that the conscious self can exist apart from matter, apart from the brain, apart from the material body. And that's who we really are, not these gross physical bodies that are serving as our vehicles at the present moment. Yeah, we're so I think that that is the one thing that I would like to see change. If I were going to rewrite the textbooks, I would say nobody has shown that consciousness can come from chemicals in the brain. There's a lot of scientific evidence from out-of-body and near-death experiences, organ transplants, life memories, and other things that support the idea that the conscious self can exist apart from matter. What do you think about the theory that the you're not necessarily you in this meat suit, that the pineal gland is like an antenna and you're tuned into this certain frequency that is, you know, in quotation marks, you? Um, well, I may any? not put it in exactly in terms of the pineal gland or whatever. Sure. But I do believe that 
the real self is something that has to be uncovered that at the present moment we tend to identify the self with the bodily vehicle that we occupy and if it's mm -hmm. an american vehicle uh, has a certain skin color we identify with that that's the right real self but the real self is not that it's like you know it's like if you have an actor who performs different roles in different movies mm -hmm. you know like sometimes actors get into a problem where they forget who they really are you know mm -hmm. they've gotten so into character mm -hmm. in a movie that they lose touch with their real identity and they have to go into analysis or counseling to kind of get back in touch with their real self so i think for the conscious self in the world of matter and you know, we take on one type of body after another and when we're in that body we identify with it you know if we're in the dog body we identify with that if we're in the human body we identify with that but who are we really beyond all those identifications with those temporary forms that we use as vehicles? That's the question. And yeah. I think it's possible to reach an understanding of that, but it requires some practice, it requires some knowledge, it requires some discipline to understand that because otherwise you, you're just like the actor who is taking on one role after another and different movies and loses touch with who he or she really is in terms of their own identity and own relationships yeah that's a great way to put it that that's that's really I, I like how you spelled that out for us um have you ever now i know you've you know been in and out of india a lot have you ever met with any of the agori hindus are, are you familiar with those with that uh group of people what are they agori hindus uh they are the ones that embrace the darkness they'll like meditate on dead bodies they'll eat you know human yeah. remains uh and i understand what they're you know what they're trying to do is kind of eliminate duality i guess yeah but they just seem like a scary group i, I don't know if i well wanna... what you find not just in india but around the world is there are different types of religious systems mm -hmm. and like anything else in the material world basically they fall under three categories and those categories are called uh, the mode of goodness the mode of passion 
and the mode of ignorance. Uh, okay. So these three modes govern a lot of things, not just religious behavior, but all different kinds of behavior. The things in the mode of goodness, you know, or people or in the mode of goodness tend to be living simply, naturally. They have some spiritual awareness. They're calm. They're peaceful. They're satisfied with the minimum necessities. Mm-hmm. A person in the mode of passion is more into acquisition, mm-hmm. heavy endeavor, you know, they're very active in trying to acquire material power, material success. You know, that's the mode of passion. Mm-hmm. Then the mode of ignorance means they're kind of into violence, intoxication, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, the, the dark side of things, and they're not very materially ambitious, and they're not very peaceful, like, so you have religious systems that are based on these different modes of nature. Religion in the mode of goodness is looking for peace, looking for equality among all living things, mm-hmm. you know, being compassionate and merciful and you know, trying to help everyone. Uh, religions in the mode of passion are sometimes into making big displays of religious piety, building huge structures, uh, you know, having, you know, raising lots of money to build churches. It it drives me nuts. Now, we go to uh, a Catholic church. I, I don't follow the church itself, but, you know, the religion has a lot of good things but i i do like we go to a church and it looks like uh gucci designed the inside that you know there's gold everywhere and just massive marble pillars and stuff and i just think like is that really what you think that this religion wants from you they want you to go out and help people and you know feed the poor and needy and stuff like that they don't care about your you know, $10 million interior redesign on your church. So yeah. that's kind of a big turnoff for me when you, you know, you go to a place of worship and it's just, you, it's clear that, you know, it's, yeah. it's more about a display. The only positive thing I would say, if a person were going to use all their money to build a palace for themselves, with a Gucci-designed interior and lots of gold and stuff. It may be better for that person if they give it away and build a big church for God, even though that may not be the best thing ultimately. 
That's a maybe good it's helpful for that person, you know, rather than make the palace for themselves. That's true. Make it for, you know, that that's kind of like the mode of passion, you know, to acquire lots of wealth and use it and build, and, you know, true. do stuff like that. So I, I was also raised in the Roman Catholic faith. I think there are some good things about it. I remember once, uh, I, when I was young, you know, in my, you know, maybe about 2019 or something like that, I, I went to Israel, and it was around Christmas time, so I went to Bethlehem. And it was just after, this was in 1968 or 69, it was just shortly after they had some big war, mm-hmm. you know, the Israelis and the surrounding countries. Mm-hmm. And there were no tourists around, because normally you go to Bethlehem to, uh, you know, on Christmas Eve, it would be packed sure. with hundreds of thousands of people, but there was absolutely no one there. They were kind of all scared away by the war that had Mm -hmm. taken place so i with a couple of friends of mine and i we we went down into the there's a a church of the nativity yeah where you can go in and you go down underground and you come to this cave where they say christ was born and mm-hmm. I went there, and there were some Belgian nuns. You know, a few Belgian nuns were there, mm-hmm. and they were singing Christ- Christmas carols in Latin. You know, mm-hmm. like so, it was like a the best Christmas I ever spent. Because mm-hmm. normally in America. Yeah, like yeah, you know, Christmas is like a big celebration of the economy. Yeah, you, know, you, you, know, you hear the, the the stores have made this much profit. The sales are up and down from last Christmas. It becomes a huge commercial event, mm-hmm. and you know the actual inspiration for it. You know the appearance of Christ in the world is kind of totally lost. In the popular entertainment and commercial uh, festival of consumption and production, it's like you know. Uh, so I, I would say, in a lot of these institutions there's kind of like an external aspect to it that is you know kind of not very much to my liking but yeah well that when they monetize stuff they ruin it but at the root of it there may be some genuine spiritual i i kind of like the word spirituality rather than religion sure but uh, you know, even though there, there may be this external aspect to it that is not very satisfying on a certain level, <laughs> usually in some 
these traditions, there is some core, maybe esoteric you know, teaching or insight that is valuable. You've got a work in progress, Extreme Human Antiquity. Can you give us a quick preview and then we'll let you have the rest of your day? <laughs> Find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would like to say it's on the presses right now, but, but basically, in the years since Forbidden Archaeology was published, new cases have come to my attention, and there's some updates on the, some of the cases I mentioned in the book. And I wanted to get that out. Uh, one difficulty is, you know, getting illustrations, you know, mm -hmm. for for things. You know, you ask somebody, can I use the photograph of this artifact? And you know, it, it sometimes it becomes uh, a little difficult to. Yeah. If they don't agree with what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. You know, there are different things like that. So hopefully the, these things will all be resolved in the near future. And we'll, I mean, the book is all written. There's just some, some things that have to be gone through in terms of the illustrations to uh, get it out. So, all right. Uh, did you want to tell us a little bit about the Bhaktivedanta Institute? Did I get that name right? Yeah. Uh, like I said uh, a little bit earlier, I, in the 1970s, when I was in my 20s, I became initiated by a guru from India. His name was Bhaktivedanta Swami. Mm -hmm. And he uh, taught bhakti yoga, which is devotion to Krishna. It's a mm -hmm. Sanskrit name for God. It means all attractive. Mm -hmm. And he was very interested in the interface between science and spirituality. So he founded an institute called the Bhaktivedanta Institute which was dedicated to giving Vedic perspectives on modern science. And one of the things he, one of the projects he initiated in connection with that is what he called the Temple of the Vedic Planetarium. In other words, mm -hmm. he wanted a structure in India, and this structure is up now. Uh, he wanted a, a a temple that would also feature in its design and and its its spaces elements of the Vedic cosmology, 
and okay. cosmology means everything in existence. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what the cosmos is, and that includes us, right? And how we relate to the cosmos that we find ourselves in. So it deals with all the kinds of questions of identity and purposefulness of the cosmos and what its actual elements are because i think there's the part of the cosmos that we're in now is the material part and beyond that there's what i call the level of pure consciousness which is the other part of the cosmos where consciousness can express itself fully without the limitations of the kinds of material bodily vehicles we occupy on this level of reality so it's kind of an interesting project i'm involved in helping design and implement the exhibits that will uh, be part of a, a museum that's part of the structure what an so, honor that's that's amazing I, i'm happy for you that you get to contribute so much to something that you know you obviously care so deeply about that's that's got to be a really nice feeling to have well you know somehow or other i've always wanted to do something yeah originally i was thinking you know when i was younger of going into government and maybe one of the intelligence agencies and trying to do something. But th- then I thought like, or the diplomatic service or something like that, because mm-hmm. I wanted to do something for, you say, world peace or something, something for that went beyond you know, just my own personal desires for myself. But then I kind of saw that whatever I would do would have to be, I would have to follow the policy of my country. In other words, it wouldn't be truly international or worldwide because when push came to shove, you know, you'd have to follow the policy of your country, you know, rather than something that would be good for everyone on the planet. Uh, yeah, I so I was kind of looking for something that was more, that kind of went beyond the nationalist conception sure. to sure. kind of embrace all the, not just humans, but all the living things on this planet, you know, be for everyone's benefit, uh, not just the benefit of a particular country or even a particular species. Sure. Yeah, so, so I kind of found that in uh, the bhakti yoga system that I practice. And people can, if they're interested in learning more about that, can they find that 
link on your website as well? Uh, yes. Uh, as I said, we're kind of making a, an offer. If people buy on my website the copy of my latest book, My Science, My Religion, which deals with how I integrate spirituality and science. If they get a copy of that book from my website, we will also offer such a person, if they want to receive it, a free copy of Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the texts of ancient India that deals with these kind of topics and which has greatly inspired me in my work. So, yes, these kinds of things can also, I mean, in addition to offering copies of my books, uh, some of these texts from ancient India are also being offered. Like I said, there is that special offer of getting a free copy of Bhagavad Gita. If someone purchases my science, my religion on my website. Absolutely. And what is that website again? mcremo.com. M-C-R-E-M-O.com. And mail can also be left for me on that website. Okay. Fantastic. Well, remember, Michael's not funded by Big Pharma or the Smithsonian or Rockefellers. He's funded by you and I. So make sure to get his books on his website so he can continue to bring us uncensored truths about our own origin. Is there anything else that you want to wrap up with or... You've been so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. I didn't mean for it to go this long, but there's just, you have so much information. Oh, did we, did we go over time? Just a little bit. I mean, it's fine with me. I just feel bad keeping you. So No, I mean, uh, this is, this is what I live for. You know, it's, uh, it's a kind of activity. It's almost like being a musician. You know, you have to spend some time composing, writing songs. You have to spend some time uh, getting them out. Mm-hmm. You know, however it's done these days. And <laughs> then you have to represent. You have to tour. You have to put out the sounds. Sure. And you can't do it all by yourself. There other people involved in the process. So I'm kind of like in a similar position. I have to spend some time thinking (laughs) and writing, and then I've got to figure out how to get things out, published. And then I have to represent, you know. So to me, it's it's all fun. And it's not just all up to me. I mean, there are uh, people like yourself who are providing platforms for knowledge to get out there. There are the people listening who are curious about these things and, you know, kind of supporting the whole, whole thing. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's just something I really love doing. We just try and present to the world that there's so much more out there that you've never heard of. 
than just going on Netflix or TikTok or, you know, even being in college. It's just, there's so much amazing stuff out there that you're never, ever going to find out about unless you put some effort in and, you know, go past page two or three on a, a Google search. So, you know, we're, we're hoping that, you know, we're waking some people up and, you know, with guests like you, I mean, it's, it's hard to deny what you're saying because there's just mountains of evidence. What is, uh, forbidden archaeology is like 900 pages, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah, just loads. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. Like we thought, well, maybe 900 pages is too much. Mm -hmm. So let, let's put out an abridged edition for the general public. You know, all the same cases, but just explained in a more concise way. Sure. So we did that. We put out a book called the Hidden History of the Human Race, which is the abridged version of Forbidden Archaeology. It's about 300 pages long. But what was really surprising is that the bigger book sold more, <laughs> continued to sell more than the shorter book. Because it seemed that the people who were interested in this topic didn't want the shorter version. They wanted everything they could possibly learn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was really surprised by that. It was unexpected. Well, that's a good thing. That shows that the people that, you know, are interested in this topic are willing to put effort into, you know, even if they're not going out to different archaeological sites, if you're willing to put in the effort to read 900 pages, you, you want to know the truth, and you present it. So, thank you so much for that, and thanks for your time. We hope you'll come back and tell us all about extreme human antiquity at some point. Yeah, I would, I would love to do that. Thank you so much to Michael Cremo for joining us tonight in blowing your mind, or at least my mind. You can find us all over social media at cryptique underscore podcast on TikTok, at cryptique podcast on YouTube. X is at podcast evil. We are on Truth Social. We're on Gab, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. Don't forget to uh, like, subscribe, follow, share. That's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. What does Ryan hate it when I say? Don't sleep. Cryptique. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. <laughs>